6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, December 14th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, more on that controversial deal approved last night by the UW Board of Regents. Consumer advocates outline some scams to look out for when you're holiday shopping. A Madison lawmaker recaps the year in reproductive justice. And in the second half, a local business is helping formerly incarcerated people find work. A how-to guide on electrical repair hits your airwaves. And a goldsmith says the only way to finish a project is to start it. This is Stacy Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A vote authorizing an inquiry into the possible impeachment of President Biden got the support of all six Republicans in the House of Representatives, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Members of the chamber voted 221 to 212 in favor of the inquiry Wednesday, with all Republicans voting in favor and all Democrats voting against. The Republican-controlled Oversight, Judiciary, and Ways and Means Committee has been pursuing this investigation for months without unearthing any evidence of a crime. However, Republicans wanted the investigation to get formal approval from the House to enhance its legitimacy. Speaking of President Biden, he's headed to Wisconsin next week. The White House confirmed today that a visit to Milwaukee is in the works for next Wednesday, though more details are not immediately available. Biden last visited the state in August, also in Milwaukee, where he visited a renewable energy company. A coalition of activists calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip held a press conference today outside Senator Tammy Baldwin's office, urging her to become the sixth U.S. Senator to call for a break in hostilities in the region. Speakers included Sela Barr, representing Jewish Voice for Peace, Rowan Atala of the Madison Rafa City, Sister City Project, Madison Alder Marsha Rummel, and Samer Alatut, UW-Madison Professor of Community and Environmental Sociology. The coalition asks that Baldwin advocate for an immediate ceasefire, for a cut in military aid to Israel, and for that country to abide by international law and begin sincere negotiations with Palestinians as well as a reversal of the U.S. veto of the United Nations, Article 99. In addition, the group asks Baldwin to call on Israel to lift the siege on Gaza, allow unlimited humanitarian aid to the region, oppose forced removal of residents from their homes, and, on the West Bank, halt attacks by settlers, military and police raids, and child detention. Senators Dick Durbin, Elizabeth Warren, Peter Welsh, Jeff Merkley, and most recently, Bernie Sanders, have called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Terms of a possible court settlement involving the owners of the company that makes OxyContin would call the fundamentals of federal bankruptcy law into question, Wisconsin's Attorney General says. The agreement currently before the U.S. Supreme Court would leave the Sackler family, owners of Purdue Pharma, with a large share of their billions of dollars in assets intact. Attorney General Josh Call told the news organization WisPolitics this week. Purdue Pharma declared bankruptcy in 2019. The settlement under consideration stipulates that the Sacklers would pay $4 billion over a decade toward efforts to overcome the opioid crisis. The Sacklers later raised that sum to $6 billion, still well under the $11 billion the U.S. House Oversight Committee concluded the family was worth in 2021. The fact that the Sacklers would still be billionaires after the settlement concludes calls for a reevaluation of the way the bankruptcy system works, Call says. Still, the process is a balancing act. And Call said fighting to wrest away all of the Sacklers' money may not be in the best interest of getting aid to the states to fight opioid addiction as quickly as possible. The Supreme Court stepped in after the U.S. Justice Department's trustee program objected to the proposed settlement, saying it violates federal law by shielding the Sackler family, who have not declared bankruptcy. 
The Lac de Flambeau Ojibwe tribal chair has traded written barbs with the area's state senator over road access on reservation land and the legislature's decision to withhold a million dollars in promised gaming revenue from the tribe. State Senator Mary Felskowski accused the tribe in a letter last week of having, quote, bad leadership after tribal chairman John Johnson complained about the refusal to disperse the promised gaming revenue, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Felskowski and other Republican legislatures confirmed that one of the reasons the money was withheld is the, was, is the tribe's decision to block public access to four roads that cross reservation land. The tribe won a lawsuit filed by homeowners who lost access to their dwellings because of the closures. Johnson has said that the leases on those roads expired 10 years ago and couldn't get the other interested parties involved to negotiate in good faith. The American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin is stepping up an investigation into six school districts that the organization suspects are removing an unwarranted number of books from circulation. The group filed open records requests with the Menominee Falls, Howard Swamico, Waukesha, Elmbrook, Elkhorn, and Kenosha school districts, seeking information on the district's decisions to remove books from their shelves, the Capital Times reports. The ACLU claims the actions were taken under the influence of pressure campaigns by, quote, extremist parent groups. As an example, the Elkhorn School District pulled 444 books out of circulation in its middle and high schools Wednesday based on one parent's complaint, according to the district superintendent. Madison Metro Transit says it's experiencing a temporary shortage of buses. The city division says it has the buses, but some have been pulled out of service as staff haven't, hasn't been able to complete federally required safety mileage inspections. Now, that comes as the department says it's experiencing a shortage of mechanics to service the buses. As a result, some morning routes may be canceled. No word on how long that might continue, though they say they're confident it won't be a lingering issue. Earlier this fall, Metro announced that it had exceeded one million rides given in a single month, the first time since the pandemic it had reached those numbers. Meanwhile, a Madison teen was hit by a car on East Wash on Tuesday while trying to catch a bus. The teen had ignored traffic lights and was running across the busy thoroughfare to catch his ride when he was clipped by a car that left the scene, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. And finally, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is sharing details on her trip to Dubai last week where she attended a United Nations conference on climate change. The event, known as COP28, is an international forum for countries to find solutions to the climate crisis. This time, COP28 invited cities to participate for the first time. The mayor attended as both a representative of Madison and as the chair of a national network of mayors focused on climate change. While in Dubai, she shared how federal funding has helped the all-electric BRT system planned for Madison alongside other initiatives like electric vehicles and energy retrofitting. She also spoke about barriers faced by Madison, such as the city's inability to adopt more energy-efficient standards due to the state legislature. Those were the headlines, and now on to today's top stories. In yesterday evening's re-vote, the UW Board of Regents approved a controversial deal with state Republican leadership, but with some amendments. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the latest. The UW Systems Board of Regents approved the controversial deal yesterday in what the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports was the board's fifth meeting in seven days. The deal was narrowly rejected in an eight to nine vote on Saturday. Last night, the deal passed, this time by a wider margin. Three regents who had initially voted no flipped their votes in favor of approval. Those regents, all appointees of Governor Tony Evers, were Board President Karen Walsh, Board Vice President Amy Bogust, and UW Parkside student Jennifer Statton. In total, last night's meeting, this time in open session, lasted about 45 minutes, enough time for regents to defend their positions and criticize the situation. Here's Regent Statton, one of the three who flipped her vote last night. Speaker Voss's definition of DEI is division, exclusion, and indoctrination. What rock is he living under? 
he has lost touch of the reality of how people are actually living. Because to be honest, we aren't walking around arguing about DEI. He has created and perpetuated this battle here in Wisconsin. That's his world of politics, which we all know is a very small percentage of our population, and therefore his opinions are statistically insignificant. Under the approved deal, the UW system is set to receive $800 million in state funds. That means UW system employees will get their pay raises, which were approved in the state budget but have been held up for months by Republican lawmakers. Other funds will go to capital projects, demolishing old facilities, and renovating dorms across the state, and developing a new engineering building for UW-Madison, the biggest budget priority for the campus. In exchange, the board has agreed to implement a number of controversial changes. The UW system will freeze hiring through 2026, aside from additions to faculty and student and research support staff. One-third of the diversity, equity, and inclusion employees, 43 total positions, will transition to work supporting all students. And the deal comes with specific concessions from UW-Madison. A program that works to diversify faculty will sunset at the end of the academic year. And the campus must hire a faculty member to teach conservative political thought, classical economic theory, or classical liberalism. UW-Madison will now have to guarantee admission for all in-state students who are in the top 5% of their high school class. The rest of the UW system schools will guarantee admission for the top 10%. Student applications will no longer include diversity statements. And incoming students will have to take a mandatory orientation seminar on free speech. The deal contained minor modifications to the proposed deal last week. Speaking at last night's meeting, Regent Robert Atwell characterized the past week's negotiations as a swell of chaos. As regents, we've experienced a lot of emotion in the last week. But our emotion is not like the concrete consequences of our decisions and non-decisions on the people who work and study on our campuses. Regent Bogust pointed to the rushed nature of last Saturday's emergency meeting, saying the regents didn't have time to consider the points of the agreement reached between System President Rothman and Assembly Speaker Voss. She says she was convinced to switch her vote after hearing support for the deal from UW chancellors alongside a commitment to campus diversity. We will hold our feet to the fire on this, and by adopting this resolution, it does not reduce or eliminate that accountability for them or for us. Mark Money, chancellor of UW-Milwaukee, said that the deal is imperfect, but his campus and others need the promised funding. The cut that we've already experienced of $32 million is real. That has compromised our campus in a time of already difficult financial straits. He also expressed the fear that the Republican-held state legislature would only issue further cuts in the future, speculating. If they don't need these funds for raises or buildings or operations, what else can be reduced? Some regions continued to maintain that accepting the deal would set a dangerous precedent. Here's Regent John Miller, who voted against the deal with five others last night which is that the legislature can withhold funds for the sole purpose of making a political statement. It is wrong. In a statement last night, Governor Evers characterized the ordeal as a vast overreach by Republican lawmakers to control, subvert, and obstruct government. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. In the holiday shopping season, shoppers are often reminded to be on the lookout for fraudulent activity. But is the information reaching everyone? Consumer advocates say that's a concern and outline some recent scams to be mindful of. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Consumer advocates say more people report being targeted by scammers, and key information to protect their financial identity isn't always getting through. A Wisconsin expert hopes holiday shoppers take note. A new AARP national survey reveals that in the past year, 52% of those surveyed say they've received a false notification about a package shipment issue. That's nearly double from the previous year. Courtney Anclam with AARP Wisconsin says a fraud knowledge quiz associated with the survey shows a disconnect in what to look out for. Especially when you talk about ads on social media, it's sometimes really difficult to discern if that's real or not. So I think where, you know, the landscape is always shifting, people are maybe not keeping up as much as they should be on some of those new tactics. Only 28% of the quiz respondents answered most questions correctly. 
AnClam acknowledges a lot of people don't have time to research the latest warnings, but she says scammers prey on busy schedules this time of year. For online shopping, she suggests looking up the company name with the words scam and fraud to see if concerns pop up in the internet search. And when shopping at brick-and-mortar stores, Ann Clam says getting gift cards requires some extra attention. It's just making sure that gift cards haven't been tampered with before you purchase it. You can see the PIN number on the back when it should be covered and stuff like that. Other tips include being suspicious of huge discounts on hot gift items, especially when they're promoted on social media. And if you plan to travel this holiday season, AARP suggests being wary of websites pretending to be legitimate hotels, airlines, and other related businesses. This is Mike Bowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. 2023 is the Year of Reproductive Justice, according to State Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat from Madison. She says that while the 1849 abortion ban has been lifted, the fight continues. This afternoon, she spoke to WORT news reporter Faye Parks to discuss what's ahead. Thank you for joining me, Senator Royce. It's good to be with you, Faye. Now that there's this final ruling from Judge Schlipper, what does this change exactly and what was your initial reaction when it came through? Well, it was expected based on her preliminary ruling. I think everyone expects that this case is going to end up in the state Supreme Court because we know that the anti-choice movement will not give up. They want to see abortion banned nationwide and they don't want to give one inch. This has been their strategy for the last 50 years and they're not stopping now. So you've said that 2023 is the year of reproductive justice. Can you tell us more about that? Well, in 2023, finally, this country has realized how critically important not just the legal right to abortion, but actually being able to access it is. Reproductive justice is making sure that everyone is able to access the full spectrum of reproductive care. Obviously, abortion is a critical part of that, as is contraception and comprehensive sex ed. But it's also important for people to have access to paid family leave and child care, and that people who want to raise children can do so in healthy and safe communities. You know, for a long time, Roe v. Wade was a right on paper. But for so many Wisconsinites and Americans, they were left out. They couldn't actually find an abortion clinic that would serve them, or they didn't have the money, or they have to worry about being treated in an unjust manner by the healthcare profession because of who they were, where they were from, or what they looked like. And we need to change all of these things so that every person in our community can thrive and make their own reproductive decisions. And that's really what reproductive justice is about. And I think with Roe having been taken away from us in an instant, this country is finally waking up. So you mentioned that this ruling is likely to eventually make its way to the state Supreme Court. Um, In the meantime, are there any things on your docket for the next year on the legislative side of things? Again, you know, Roe v. Wade is really very minimal in terms of what it allows people to do. And Wisconsin has one of the most heavily restricted states. So if you want to access an abortion here today or under Roe v. Wade, you would be subject to mandatory delay, biased counseling from a state-mandated script that doctors would have to say that does not include medically accurate information. There are required parental involvement laws. There are cost barriers and bans on uh, insurance coverage. So there are a lot of things that make it hard for people to functionally access abortion. And we want to make sure that everyone is able to access abortion when they need it safely and without political barriers being put in their place. So I think when we see what the anti-choice movement is doing, which is they are pushing for further and further bans, they want to go as far as they possibly can in every state and in every municipality, It is up to those of us who believe in freedom and want the right to make our own decisions to say, absolutely not. We are done with political interference in these personal private decisions, and we are not going to let the anti-choice movement gain a foothold. And, you know, the last thing that anybody needs when they are facing a challenging moment in their life is for their politician to insert themselves into it. And it's been very gratifying to see Americans in every part of this country, red and blue, responding overwhelmingly by supporting abortion rights and reproductive freedom. Can you walk me through some of the lived consequences of the current laws? So for a lot of people, when they face an unintended pregnancy, they're going to be looking for information on what their options are. 
And the anti-choice movement has been very good and very devious about putting misinformation all out there. They have a network of so-called crisis pregnancy centers whose entire job it is to entice and then coerce women into their doors and give them misinformation that can, in some cases, delay or, or inhibit their ability to access abortion. They'll be given wrong information about their pregnancies. They'll be told they're getting medical services, even though they don't have any medical providers on staff. So just finding accurate information is a barrier. Another huge barrier is cost. We know that for many women who seek abortion, they do so in part because of economic reasons. They don't feel prepared to have another child or they don't feel economically stable enough to bring a child into the world, in part because this country does such a terrible job of supporting parents and young children. We have no family leave. We have no subsidized child care. Um, it's very, very paltry child care in this state then you have to find a, an abortion provider and get an appointment. And then you have to wait to go through basically a state-mandated counseling session. And then at least 24 hours later is when you're first eligible to actually receive an abortion. So for this coming year, do you have any specific legislative priorities that you would like to preview or things that you're planning on doing? Well, we're going to continue working to try to unrestrict access to reproductive care in Wisconsin. We just recently in the last month unveiled a series of bills to try to do that, to remove some of these political interferences that make it hard for people to access care. But we also want to work to make Wisconsin a better place for families and for young children. I have young kids, and as a working parent, I know how challenging it is to have safe and affordable child care. So we want to make sure that we're expanding access to child care and publicly supporting it. We need to have paid family leave in this country. The United States has uh, the worst maternal mortality in the developed world, and a lot of it has to do with how cruelly this country treats women um, and people who are postpartum just after they've given birth. So there's a lot of work to be done. Wisconsin has some of the worst racial disparities in the nation. So if you are a black person giving birth, you are many times more likely to die than a white person in our state. And that is absolutely shameful. And all of these are things that we can address and end if we make good policy choices. Expanding access to health care, making sure that everybody has universal paid leave, making sure that every single baby is born with having excellent prenatal care. So there's a lot that we can do to help Wisconsin be a place where everyone can thrive and everyone can make their own reproductive decisions and have those decisions be supported by our community rather than hindered by political interference. So when it comes to some of these reforms that you've listed, do you think they are likely to succeed this go around and be passed? Well, right now we are in a heavily gerrymandered Republican legislature that is controlled by people who want to see abortion completely banned, right? These are people who oppose, in many cases, access to birth control. They oppose medically accurate sex education, and they want to direct public money to organizations that lie to women. So, no, I don't think it's going to happen in this legislative session. That said, I think that there is a good chance that we will have fair maps on the horizon in the coming months. And that the 2024 election will finally give Wisconsinites the chance to make their voice heard and have it be reflected in the makeup of the legislature. Wisconsin State Senate is one of the top chambers across the country that could flip from red to blue. And so, you know, if we're talking next year at this time, uh, we could be having a completely different conversation, not just stopping the bad things that are happening and the attempts to ban abortion and direct public money to these bad actor anti-choice organizations, but about finally enacting some of these long overdue protections for access to reproductive care and supports for families. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Senator Royce. Thank you for your time, Faye. That was Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat from Madison. She discussed the new landscape of abortion care in Wisconsin after a recent ruling determined the 1849 feticide law does not ban consensual abortions. But according to Senator Royce, the work is far from over. She says this coming year, she and her colleagues plan to fight the remaining restrictions on abortion care, codify paid family leave for Wisconsin residents, and address racial disparities in medical care. The time is now 6.31, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. 
Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from the Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D-Star speaks with Zach and Veronica with Just Bakery, a training program for people experiencing significant barriers to finding work. They share details of the bakery program and the challenging roads they took to get where they are now. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Zach Wisniewski and Veronica Diaz. All right. How y'all doing today? I'm good. I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're going to start with you, Veronica. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a teacher at Just Bakery. Oh, I'm Zach. I'm the lead instructor at Just Bakery. I teach all the people the main subjects and get everything organized. So, Veronica, where are you from? I grew up in Madison. I've been here since I was 10. I was born in New York. Parents are Dominican. They came to New York when... And my mom was pregnant with me. What about you, Zach? Born in Janesville. I've lived in Madison all my life. Traveled a little bit here and there, but mostly Madison, I would say, is majority of my life, Madison. So what made you guys want to get into this type of work at Just Bakery? I had just got moved out of days, the domestic abuse shelter, and I was kind of not knowing what to do with my life. I was working at MSCR. I loved the kids, but I didn't like the staff. I felt like there was no direction. I wasn't being supported. And then my sober coach sent me um, a job application for Just Bakery. She's like, is for an assistant teacher. You know, I feel like you would fit it. And I've never heard of Just Bakery. So I looked them up. And when I saw what they stood for online, I was like, wow, this this is something that I could definitely get behind and actually feel like what I'm doing has meaning. I'm not just filling a role to get a paycheck to pay my bills. And when I interviewed with them, it was amazing. I got the job and I love it. Awesome. What about you, Zach? So my story is a little different. I'm actually a two-time participant myself. I took the program twice while I was incarcerated. I took it about 2018, I want to say. In 2018, I took the program um, my story is a little different. I didn't take the program for any like real like point at first. I just took it because I was incarcerated. I knew that it was a way to get out of jail and who doesn't want to get out of jail for five days a week is what I was thinking, you know, but once I started taking the program and I started meeting all these different people with different resources and I started seeing the changes in my life and I realized like this isn't the life you want to live and there's so much other opportunity out there. I realized I needed to come back and take it. But unfortunately, by the time I realized that it was like a week before the final like curriculum test that we had to take at the at the school we do. And so I asked to come back and take it. And they were like, yeah, you can come take it again, but you're going to have to take the whole program over. So my last three months in jail, I was taking the program all the way over again. When I got out, I realized how hard it was still going to be. Like I had got all these resources, but I didn't realize how hard it was still going to be as a felon. And so I went and worked at this, uh, I worked at Panera for a little bit. And then I realized I wasn't even supposed to be actually working there. So then it was hard to find a job. And I saw that just bakery was actually hiring assistant positions. So I went over there and was like, Hey, I really want to do this. This is something that helped change my life. I think I could do this. You know, I, I like the teaching aspect of it. Let me get a chance. So I took the assistant position. It was only gonna be like a six month position. And then I ended up like four years. Yeah. And now I'm the lead instructor. What are some of the obstacles that you guys had to overcome in your life to get to this point to be instructors at Just Bakery? I would say um, some of the biggest obstacles would be uh, definitely like drug addiction. Like that's one of the things that stops me or stopped me pretty much every every day. Like everything that got me out of like before I went to Huber, I failed bill monitoring, failed drug court, right? Failed as um, an inmate worker even, right? So how was I going to get sober and get a job? Like that was like the hardest part for me. I didn't even think I was gonna be able to succeed in probation. So I think drug addiction was the hardest um, obstacle. And then just the support, right? You have all these friends that you're used to hanging out with that aren't always the best influence. Now you got to start over, right? You got to go out there and I don't know, you got to pretty much represent yourself. Like this is not who what I'm trying to do anymore. And you got to accept that a lot of those people might not want to be there for you. A lot of obstacles for me started, well, some of them started from young. Sexual abuse is an obstacle wow. that I had to come over. And I feel like a lot of girls in the Hispanic community have had to deal with that as well because it's so common and that's not a good thing. Um, and then I grew up Mormon actually. So not being around anything, like not even seeing a person smoke a cigarette, not being even seeing beer in real life to then being 13 and seeing all of that, I went crazy. So when I was young, I guess I had romanticized being a drug addict. So it kind of had like the opposite effect on you, you know, because as parents, we want to shield our kids away from the world. But it's like you don't want to shield them too much because then when they do get presented with the temptations of the world, 
that they, like you said, kind of just go crazy. And then they start to see it on TV and romanticize and say, oh, I, you know, because all you see on TV is like people drinking and having fun yeah. and, you know, the commercials and, hey, you know, have this beer, have this wine. And I would watch know? MTV and in my head I'd be like, OK, that's what I want to be like, you know. So and then you're seeing that, oh, to get girl, you have to get all the guys by showing your skin and doing all this stuff. And then when I was younger, I had a lot of male attention, which I didn't like. I cut up my face. You know, I would wear goth clothes. I would make myself scary so that men didn't want to approach me, you know, and that obviously I had a lot of healing that I had to do myself growing up. Addiction is definitely my biggest obstacle so and and then now i feel like especially in the positions that i'm in now i want to be someone that people strive to be like okay so she's able to go to work and have a regular life and now right now where i'm at two years ago i was homeless living in my car you know and right now i have my own apartment and i have a car and i did all that because just bakery helps you get that stability. And even if you mess up, they're not going to turn their back on you. And that was a big relief because I've been at jobs where one mistake, you're gone, where you're living in fear of not having a paycheck. And this job, it's like a family. I've never worked at a place like that. And they treat all their students just the same way as they treat the staff. So that that's, this is what really helped me to get my life more together. But before I got this job, I was already on that path, but I needed this to help give me that foundation. Can you guys share with me one of your favorite success stories? Basically, this student they had um, a learning disability. So when I was teaching, I had to make sure like, are you understanding what I'm teaching or do you want me to teach in a different way? They really liked videos and they really liked hands-on pictures and stuff. And it really, at first, I didn't think, like she even told me she didn't want to take the program. She was just doing it. Um, and so she was just kind of going through the motions, but like same thing with me towards the end, she really saw all of the resources and then it just became one of those things where it was like snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity kind of thing. She literally just like took it through, through and through all right, Veronica and Zach, thank you guys for coming. My name is D-Star, Solid Box Podcast. Till next time, guys. In this episode of The House Always Wins, feature contributors Allie Berrieni and John Stephanie talk about electrical basics and how to replace that sad light fixture in your home. I call it housework, because it's light work. What you, what you done I'm going to throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello everyone, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff. Hey Allie, uh, you and I have had some inquiries about basic electrical things in the house. Some things that have been asked is, can I replace my own light fixture or outlet? Or can I rewire my entire house? Okay, maybe not the last one. But people have asked and are often surprised when I'll say, well, yes. You can replace a fixture in your house in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've replaced more than a few in my time, and it's not super complicated as long as you follow some common sense rules as you go, like turning off the circuit you're about to work on. Oh, that's always a great idea. Otherwise, the results can be shocking, Ugh. or you get all amped up, Ugh. or lit, or many other bad electrical jokes I can't think of right now. Oh, I think you can think of all of them. Your jokes aren't current, and you need to find another outlet for your humor. Oh, well played. Okay, nicely done. All right, well, anyway, maybe we should start this convo with giving a brief intro to electrical theory before leaping into a fixture replacement. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'll do my best, though I'll admit that electricity and magnetism class in college about broke me down. Mm. Uh, but let's just start simply. Electricity is the flow of electrons through a conductor, such as a copper wire. Similarly to how we distribute water to various parts of our house through pipes, we distribute electrons and their energy mm. through wiring that runs throughout our homes. All of the electrical energy we use comes into our house, perhaps through an overhead wire from the power line or from an underground line. So once it's in our homes, the electricity is distributed throughout the house via circuits. Uh, one circuit might power all the lights on the first floor, for example. One might power the outlets in your kitchen, that sort of thing. It also means that we can shut off one circuit and still have electricity in the house, which is really 
quite handy. Oh, yeah. If someone's working on their dissertation in another room and you shut off the whole house, that's not going to go well. That's no. for sure. One other thing about those circuits, though, is that they are closed loops or a circuit. Electricity starts flowing from your circuit breaker panel. It goes through to the light fixture you're about to replace. And if the switch is on, then the circuit is closed and you have light. But the electricity isn't done flowing yet. It goes out of the light and then flows all the way back to the panel, closing the loop. When you open the circuit by turning off the switch, you are creating a break in the conductor. The electricity is like a car right there on the shore of the river. But the drawbridge, the switch, is up so it can't get across. Our electricity car is supposed to stay on the road, but we all know that sometimes <laughs> drivers take alternate routes. Oh, yes. And this is where electricity can be dangerous. Any material that electricity can easily travel through is called a conductor. And humans, with all of our water and the salts in us, mm. we are excellent electrical conductors. Oh, yeah, for sure. So if we touch a live wire or anything that's carrying electrical current, our body can provide a pathway for that electricity causing severe injury or unfortunately even death. Indeed. And electrocution is one of the leading causes of construction job site death. So it's not to be treated lightly. And that is not a joke. And it doesn't take much electricity at all to kill you or maim you. You're right. So given that those of us who are not electricians should limit ourselves to replacing existing light fixtures, switches, or outlets. If you want to add a new fixture or outlet, or if you have a circuit that isn't working, or really any electrical mystery, call, call an electrician. Yeah. And <laughs> anything to do with the electrical panel other than opening the door, flipping a circuit breaker, that's right out for the homeowner. Just keep your fingers out of that electrical panel. Uh, finally, uh, another quick cautionary note. If you want to change a ceiling light to a ceiling fan, that might seem like a good one, um, but you ought to call an electrician on that one. Fans weigh a lot more than lights and they move. So you need an electrical box that can support that fan. Okay, now that we have the basics and the cautionary tales out of the way, let's talk uh, fixture replacement. So first step, believe it or not, open the box of the fixture you bought and make sure nothing is broken and that you have the right type of bulbs to go with it. Then read over the instructions and make sure any hardware parts that they reference are in there. And you can see it all goes together. You definitely want to do this first because you don't want to like disconnect everything, turn off breakers and circuits and find out, oh, there's parts missing. That's right. Um, so then once you're ready to begin, shut off the circuit. So you need to shut down the entire circuit. And that doesn't mean just shutting off the switch. Sometimes turning off the switch won't be enough as the electricity will be routed through the fixture first and then onto the switch. Thus, you could come into contact with a live wire even though the switch is off. A lot of people don't realize that. To turn off the circuit, you start by turning on the fixture and have someone then watch it for you. Then you're going to go down to the electrical panel. It's usually in the basement. Mm -hmm. Open the door and look for a label on its inside telling you which circuit breakers control which circuits. They are numbered and hopefully labeled. Now, if you're at my house, these labels, such as they are, will mean nothing. <laughs> so you will end up doing this the old-fashioned way, trial and error. Uh, so now you have the circuit off and you can get to work. So start by removing the old fixture. First, you're going to remove any glass parts you can, including the bulbs. Then you're going to work on pulling down the fixture itself. And there are often screws or nuts that hold most fixtures to the wall or the ceiling. Sometimes you might have to find a set screw in the base of the fixture. So remove these and the fixture should start coming loose. You'll gently pull it down, maybe have a helper hold on to it while you disconnect the wiring next. There should be two or maybe three wires. Um, so you're going to pull apart the wire nuts. Those are those colored little plastic caps on the connections. Um, and you pull those apart by turning them counterclockwise and that should free up those connection points. Uh, once the wires have been disconnected, the fixture should be free. Um, if there's any other bits and bobs of hardware that held the fixture to the electrical box, uh, you want to take that off as well. And when you're done, uh, there should be, uh, hopefully you'll see a wire that's black, one that's white, and maybe uh, either a bare wire or a green wire in the open electrical box. Right. So now you basically just do the reverse of everything you just did in putting up your new fixture. 
You start by adding whatever hardware is needed to the electrical box that will hold the fixture. Then have a helper hold up the fixture while you connect the wires from the fixture to the house wiring. Black to black, white to white, ground or bare wire to the ground or bare wire. And sometimes that ground wire might be a green wire instead of a bare wire on the fixture. But in the house, if you have a ground wire, it's almost always a bare copper wire. You shove both of the fixture wire that is stripped into the wire nut along with the house wire that is stripped as well. You then twist the wire nut clockwise until it firmly holds both wires together. Give it a tug after, and if something comes popping loose, try it again. All right, so now it's wired. Then you're going to mount the fixture to whatever bracket or other hardware you already mounted to the box. Snug everything up and step back and make sure it's level and square and looks right. And you might have to take it down again to adjust the hardware to make it sit correctly. But once you have it in place, add the light bulbs and then go and turn the circuit back on. Check. That's it. Awesome new fixture. You changed it. And that's it for us, too, as we're out of time. If you have any questions about your home or carpentry, send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Until next time, thank you. Well, this next story is going to be good for New Year's resolutions that are coming up. Is there anybody out there overthinking that one awesome thing you want to do, but you just can't make the first move? Maybe you want to make something. I mean, how many guitars are out there sitting in cases and gathering dust? Well, let's talk to Missy Howard. She's a goldsmith. She started making pretty things with metal when she was 10 years old as a member of a family trade. Now, in this episode of Radio Chipstone, Howard tells contributor Jennifer Fields to basically stop thinking about it and start already. I'm starting this new project. And the thing that I'm struggling with is that since making has not been a part of my life in this way all of my life, it's messing with my identity. Do you see yourself, has this always been a part of your identity or is it a commodity for you? Is it identity or, or commodity? It's both. I can see why you struggle with that. I can, because it changes it when you make money on it or if you do commit your life to getting good at it, kind of, you don't really have a choice other than to have it be part of your identity because you commit so much of your life to doing it. And then when you make money off of it, you know, that's why you make money off of that. It's just kind of a byproduct of being super into doing something. <laughs> if you're lucky, and I feel lucky that I can make money doing what I do. But then how do you... Where you're going to start a new project, where does that start? How do you get that, get over that hump of, I have X to do, mm -hmm. but in order to get to X, I start, have to start at A. How does A start for you? That's a good question. Um, as far as like making a piece? Yeah, starting a project. Especially when it's something that's relatively new. Mm -hmm. Like you have the skills to do what it is, but this project that you're taking on is a new version of this thing. Right. Where do you, how do you pull that all in? Uh, on paper. I draw. I draw it to scale. I measure things. I'm pretty precise about it. Probably because I mostly do custom work and I have to be super precise about the size of things say like a diamond you know somebody buys a diamond and they're like I want this ring built around this particular stone so I'll start with that which just seems kind of scientific sometimes I'll I'll find a stone that I just want to see like I just want to see it finished you know so I'll start with a drawing and then part of the creative journey that I enjoy is being like oh I get to see this transform from a two-dimensional drawing into a three-dimensional cool object that I can wear or can sell or whatever that'll be meaningful to people meaningful to me and just see it and then see it work it's that's gratifying like that feeling is super gratifying kind of like a runner's high where you have to torture yourself a lot to actually enjoy running which takes like time and training and painful you know you do painful things to your body <laughs> But then like once you're into it and you're like, you know, it's like a practice. It's like anything else. You have to like work. You have to like train yourself to get there. And then once you get there and you do the thing that you want to do, you're just like, oh, yeah, that was great. That felt good. 
I'm going to do that again. And or and or like, oh, now I'm going to get a pile of cash for this <laughs> so I can go and buy some food or whatever, more materials or whatever, you know, like that part of it is definitely sometimes I get to point A because the customer is like, hey, I'm getting married in May. <laughs> you should probably get my ring done, you know. Is failure ever a motivation? Well, it's definitely a teacher, you know, and it and motivator. Yes, it can definitely motivate. I mean, I've I've failed at some pretty major jobs that has changed the direction of my life sometimes, you know, like breaking a giant stone will make you reconsider doing certain things for people. And then you have to restructure, you know, it brought me to a better place, you know. Failing at things always does if you're not going to give up on it, you know, because I've made some horrible in my life. <laughs> I've had to make some really ugly pieces, you know, doing custom work. Some people have they have bad ideas, but they want what they want and I have to make it, you know. So I've definitely worked really hard on pieces that I'm just very like, oh, that looks like total garbage. You <laughs> wear the <laughs> But they love it. They're super happy about it, you know, like, but. People want what they want, and it's meaningful to them, so they don't care what it looks like, so why should I? You know, it's just like, whatever, I'll do it. So then, is it balancing out those moments with doing things that you really want to do for yourself or somebody else? Is that is that the balance? Because it seems to me like when you have to do something that's hideous, and I know, I think we've all had jobs where you're just like, I cannot even believe I have to do this crap, and your reward becomes the paycheck, mm-hmm. but... Does that, when you have those moments, does it make when you're doing what you want to do the way you want to do it even sweeter? Is it a, does it fuel that or is it just something that you just rather forget as soon as humanly possible? It just feels like, I mean, you know, getting paid to make stuff you don't enjoy definitely feels kind of soulless and not super rewarding. But I feel like that's that's the work. You know, that's where I'm making money is the work. And most of the work for me is the bid, is in the process of figuring out how much do I charge for this? How much, you know, this is like the business end of it. How much is my overhead? What do I have to get per hour? That part I don't love, but that's where I'm making my money. And then the the process is the part that I enjoy, that I, I don't need to be in contact with other people about. Nobody's really, you know, other than deadlines. It's on my own time in my own process and I can figure things out. And that's part of what I enjoy is the, is, you know, where is that point A? What piece do I start with? What, what cut do I make first? You know, so I have to mental, I have to go on a mental journey on how I'm going to make the thing to begin with. And sometimes I start at the wrong spot and I got to start over again. And that's frustrating, but it's like, well, you just keep going. And eventually you get that runner's high where you're just like, things are falling into place and I really enjoy it. And now I get to make this cool thing. And I like giving the piece to the customer and seeing their reaction to it too. You know, I mean, that's definitely rewarding. I mean, it's a balance. It's a lot of things, especially when you do it for a living, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs. (laughs) There really is, you know, and even just making things, I think as an artist, I think all artists go through this where you're just like, you know, like if you're going to make a piece just to make a creative piece, that's a, that's a very different process than, oh, I have to make a custom piece specifically for this stone or for this person. And doing the creative stuff comes with a whole other set of, you know, questions to ask yourself and maybe even insecurities or uncertainties that you have to overcome just by just starting something and not being afraid to mess it up, you know. That does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Peter Voller and Russ Mackey were your headline writers. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to featured contributors D-Star, Allie Bariani and John Stephanie, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget... You don't have to miss a single episode of WORT's local news when you subscribe as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. It's been real. Good night. Thanks, WORT.